Tissues? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Sasha Gray. And I'm David Guy Levy. I also host this program. Uh, and you're always awkward about saying that. <laughs> uh, and our special guest this week is Jordan Vote Roberts. Jordan Vote Roberts! Ah, David! <laughs> Hi, that's me. I'll be the guy that sounds like a Muppet. A disgruntled Muppet. A disgrunt- I got a Muppet with a chip on my shoulder. Well, let's send in the ladies, Will, and warn them that there's a Muppet in the room. <laughs> Uh, here we are. I'm still not oh. used to biting my cheeks as I speak. Biting your cheeks? Yeah. Is that the technique? No, no. I advise against it. This is just a life thing. Hello. It just happens to me. Hey, ladies. We heard there was a Muppet in here. Yep. There's a Muppet. What does it mean? Uh, it just means I have a horrible, nasally Jew voice. Marcia is, is, is working on the self-loathing Jew today. Oh, my God. <laughs> so self-deprecating. Guys. I have Ariana. And Sandra's working on Sasha. Okay. Yay. Hello. Hello. Right. Be me? Yeah. So, okay, I'll do whatever. So what do you think? What um, should we think? Maybe the back and neck. Whatever will the most pain. Kind of okay. uh, uh, terribly. Oh. My, uh, my whole body is a wreck. Stress? Generally beating my body up? I feel like a masochist today. No working out. Just stress and... Cool. Not taking care of myself. Oh, what kind of work stress? Yeah, work stress, stress, life stress, all the stresses. Oh. All the good ones. Being a Jew stress. Being a Jew stress, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so. So welcome to the show, Jordan. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about it. Like I said, today I legitimately woke up with the thought of like, ah, I should get a massage today. <laughs> and then I didn't even put it together that I was getting a massage during this podcast. Yes. So it worked out. Thank you for And then you me. eventually put it together? Eventually I put it together. Um, not long ago, though. Oh. <laughs> there was a chance that I was like... Were you on the drive here going, oh, wait a minute. No, there was a chance where I was like, ah, do I have time to go get a massage before this podcast? And then I was like, oh, well, isn't that beautiful? So it all worked out. Amazing. So uh, I'm pretty familiar with the work, and Sasha and I were, were re-watching The Kings of Summer recently, which you directed. But uh, how would you explain yourself to listeners who might not know who you are? Explain myself? Yeah, just As a person or a as filmmaker? A, as both. You know, who oh, are you? Man. What do you do in the world? Uh, what do I do in the world? I think I ask questions. Okay. <laughs> like, uh, pick up rocks and look underneath them. Um <laughs> As, as a general Your life is boring. No, My that's is, good. It keeps you, you know, curious person. I don't know, curious or psychotically curious. Oh come I on! I never said I was like OCD picking up rocks. Like, <laughs> oh god, I don't pick up this I rock. I did have My an image of you picking up every rock <laughs> you cross paths with. Yeah, I never. I never Sending said me that. vibrations, man. I gotta, I gotta um, feel it. No, as a person, I'm a real weirdo. I only like weirdos. Um, I don't like things being normal, and I don't like normal stuff in my life. With you, brother. Yeah, uh, there we go. See? What is normal? I don't even know, but... Normal is, uh... Nope. <laughs> uh, as a filmmaker, uh, I used to do a lot of comedy stuff, but... Like, I never, I never thought I was going to be a filmmaker. I loved movies, and I loved sitting in a dark room watching movies by myself or with people... Uh, but growing up in Detroit, being a filmmaker seemed impossible, um, even though I had very supportive parents. And then at a certain point, like once I discovered 
just indie cinema and art house cinema and foreign cinema, I was like, you know what? I should just try this. Like, let me just try this thing. And uh, all my friends had skills, very definable skills. They were like artists or musicians or computer programmers. And I was just like the weird maniac of my friends without a skill. And then I realized that humor was kind of like my role in the group. I was like the the clown and the guy who orchestrated all this weird shit. And, uh, and that's kind of my role as a filmmaker, I think. And so um, I don't necessarily think of myself as a comedy guy. Um, I think that comedy is just a part of life. But you, you still came up with a lot of comedy. guys. like I know you were surrounded by a lot of the people in the Second City. Yeah. Did, you, did you study there or were you just in that group? No, I, never, I, I would never go in front of a camera. I don't perform myself. Uh, <laughs> but you're very familiar with their nope. world. <laughs> and yeah, you've no, a lot of funnier die. So you, you're in those circles. Yeah, sure. well, I, th- I think improv is like a not just a, an, an important skill as an actor. Uh, I think it's a life skill. I think improv just teaches you to fail boldly and to fail bravely as a person. Um, and I think know that there'll be people there to catch you when you do. Yeah, exactly. And it's just it's learning how to step outside of your comfort zone. Uh, I actually run a or help run a charity in Detroit that puts uh, improv in public schools uh, for awesome. free. Not not as like a tool to turn kids into actors, but just as I, I really do think it's a life skill that just teaches you how to adapt and how to roll with the punches. What's the charity called? It's called the Detroit Creativity Project. Oh, very cool. Everyone yeah. should check that out. Yeah. <laughs> Donate. Like we need that. your money. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I kind of came up around comedy guys and comedy, I think, works its way into all of my work, but I don't view myself as a comedy guy. Yeah. And uh, your your track like you you made a very successful film, Kings of Summer, and your track to get there uh, was was it shows you know if you start and as you said you didn't know let me give it a try in Detroit, uh, you know you started uh, with a bunch of short films that did very well, uh, start there. Um, I had to go back to my school recently and give a talk they were like hey come back and uh, give kids advice <laughs> and I was like <laughs> I was like uh I will do this if you, you can go way harder by the way like really really yeah um, give them pain yeah please any pain in my life I'm an artist um <laughs> I uh <laughs> I had to go back and t- uh, speak at my school and I was like I'll do this if you let me speak honestly and I just kind of went up and gave this really depressing talk about how, like, school doesn't prepare you for anything. And I, I think that film school is it's great. I think it's a really wonderful thing, but... It shouldn't cost money. No, it's, no, it's not about... I mean, it costs a lot of money. It but it's just like, if you want to make it, you have to... I was just like... I had kids raising their hands and being like, wait, you mean this, like, screenplay I'm writing and screenwriting one isn't going to get me a movie? And I was just like, if you want this, you have to want it for the right reasons and you have to be able to do it over and over and over again, and you have to and fail. like the whole time, and you have to fail over and over and over again until you like start getting marginally better, and then better than that, and then better than that, and like, and that was just kind of my path. I was just out making stuff. Like, at in film school, I didn't take any directing classes because I didn't think that was something you could teach, and I just took technical classes because I knew for for the while before I found guys like you know William recording sound here, I was going to be doing everything myself. Um, and so I wanted to know how to do everything. So for a while I was just kind of like a one man wrecking crew going and like shooting shorts and editing them and mixing them and coloring them. And slowly I was able to give those responsibilities away, which was amazing. That's smart. 
I don't know if it was smart. I think it took twenty years off my life. People who are so precious with their time and say like it has to be perfect or I'm not going to work on it. They're they're waiting. They're 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 setting themselves up for failure because you need to work on it and fail at it and work on something else and fail on it. And one day you've worked on so much stuff that you 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 start to realize it's not that bad. Well, did have you guys heard that Ira Glass interview where he talks about creativity? That's the best. Yeah. It's the best, and it's so on point. We'll, we'll post that on the, it's on the, the Twitter the, the basic idea of it is, like, creative people are ultimately just people with good taste. And it takes a while, if you're honest with yourself, before the stuff you're making aligns with your own level of taste. And if you're not honest huh. with yourself, you won't grow. And, you know, I think that that's super accurate. It's, it's it was the most accurate I've ever heard someone yeah. put it. Yeah, I and, hear and, this. and you just you have to be willing. It's like a 10-minute interview, and it's beautiful and brilliant. Uh, and you just you have to be willing to fail over and over again. Otherwise, you're not going to grow. You're not. All the stuff that I failed at, I usually I was able to get most of it off of YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, what about like what about I can you just guys? Click like, private, and now no one can see it. Like, I mean, do you guys feel like you went through that process as as people and as artists? Like, oh, oh I yes, feel like, I feel like I'm still going through it too. I still feel like I'm faking it. <laughs> you know, I'm like, right. oh, wow, they let me get this far. Is it over? Let me try again. <laughs> Maybe they still believe that I know what I'm doing. Someone asked me recently, they were like, how are you doing? And, and I kind of said, like, uh, I feel like I'm a mess right now. And they were like, oh, man, are you okay? And I responded saying, I think that's a good thing. Because unless you're actually a genius, which I think very few people are true geniuses, <laughs> and I am most certainly not one of them. Um, I think unless you're one of those people, if you're going headfirst into life, which, you know, calling it like it is, like we don't know what any of this shit is, uh, straight up, uh, if you're going headfirst into life and you're trying and trying to do something, I think you should be a mess. Like it should tear you apart. And only those few like geniuses, I think can be like calm and composed and go through that at the same time. Or sociopaths. Yeah. Or complete psychopaths who will eat your soul. So, we've yeah. all met them. I, I recently watched uh, Joe Dorowski's Dune, uh, the documentary. Oh my God, it's the best! It's the it's the most inspirational thing because it's 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 a man who's one of the great filmmakers, El Topo. You know, recently the Dance with Reality, uh, and it he was he had the rights to Dune for a, a while, and he was sort of a, a rock star for a moment after making these these two beloved movies, The Holy Mountain and El Topo. And uh, he was given keys to a castle. Literally, he got to like go into a castle and 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 adapt the 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 book into his own version of a movie. And then he got an amazing team who he called his warriors. And he spent two years training his son six days a week, seven hours a day, how to be a martial artist and a Zen master. And he got Dolly, Mick Jagger, Orson Welles all to come on and be in the movie. And he got Pink Floyd to do the soundtrack right after they did Dark Side of the Moon and. It's this epic, and and he storyboarded it to a point where it was just visionary. And everything in that storyboard's probably been pillaged today by the greatest movies that you all know and love. Right. And and here's a man who just came way too early, and he tried to pitch it. And after a few years, it just didn't get made. He lost the rights. David Lynch made a crappy version of the movie, and it was uh, something at the end of the documentary. They said, "Well, how did that make you feel? Did you want to kill yourself, crawl in a hole?" And he's like, "No, I had a dream." And I and I got to dream it, and yeah. then you know it didn't come out, come out. And when when a dream doesn't work out, all you do is change direction. Yeah, 
Um, and I just I wanted to cry because like that is the experience in every movie a filmmaker will ever make. Well, the best part about it, the most satisfying never know thing, if it's going to get made. Yeah, the, well, no. The, the, and I try and explain that to so many of my friends when they're like, "Oh, my movie's getting made," and I'm like, "It's not getting made until." The day you're on set, yeah, even then, exactly. even then and, it could fall apart. Yeah, and even then it could fall apart. Yeah. And even then, that doesn't mean even if you make a good movie, that doesn't mean anyone's going to see it. Yeah. You know, like good, yeah, good movies are, are just put off to the side all the time. Yeah, but the, the beautiful thing about that doc, Sasha, have you seen it? No, I haven't. It's so. It's, great. Have you seen El Topo or the Holy yes. Mountain? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the beautiful thing about that doc is you've effectively now seen his movie. Yeah. Uh, ah, I I okay. don't think that. That movie would have turned out well, personally. Uh, it would have been. It would have like, been interesting. Insane. It would have been when, way before at the time anyone would have understood no. what to do with it. The, the philosophy behind it, though, of being like, okay, two thousand one happened. What if another movie like two thousand one happened before Star Wars happened? Yeah. How would that have changed this this landscape of cinema? That's a really interesting idea. Uh, the best part of that doc, though, is when he admits he never read Dune. <laughs> and, that, and that he raped the author's yeah, well, work. Yeah, and then, He's like, I raped yeah, the author. Exactly. To make something, you have to take it and rape it. <laughs> and rape it with love. Like, he's a, he's a maniac. But, uh, yeah, but you feel like you've seen his movie after watching that documentary. And he's just so charismatic. He's but, so charismatic. Yeah, he he's is. such a beautiful man. Oh, yeah, completely. But, you know, like, you have to train yourself. I don't know. I just feel like you have to train yourself at what you do and, like, I mean, when you made your movie, uh, for me, I feel like it's so easy for a director to get caught up on, like, oh, you're making your movie. What does it mean? What does it mean? Like, look at all these directors who made their first movie, and it turned out this way or that way. And you just get caught up on it because making your first feature seems impossible at first. It seems like a world away. It also feels like everyone's going to base your career on the foundation of your first film. Well, you think so. And And then, like, I don't know. I just remember very... Vividly, like I was posting my a full season of my TV show and prepping my movie at the same time. So mashup, I, yeah, mashup. So I yeah. just straight up did not have time for anything. And <laughs> what got me through it was a really dumb thing. Uh, there's a quote with Michael J. Fox on the one of my heroes on the making of of Back to the Future when he was doing uh, Family Ties and Back to the Future at the same time. They asked him, why do you do this? Because I guess he was getting, like, legitimately an hour of sleep a night. And he just responded being like, because I said I would, because I can, and I want to. Yeah. And that simple quote, like, got me through everything. But I remember being on my first day of set and being like, oh, this is no different than anything else. You know, like, you train yourself, and you you train yourself well enough where your job is your job. Uh, So, like, for you, like, was that any different for you or no? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean... I, I I got into producing 10 years ago because uh, I helped with a, a student at my film school produce his, his first film that turned into a feature in the process. And while I was going to classes, I was you know, trying to find money and edit it. And it took three years. And, and, but, and, I, and at the end of college, someone said, I want you to start a company. And I was like, well, I want to make – I want to be a director. But – I guess this is better than being an assistant for the next 10 years. I'll, I'll go try and produce, which was an awesome grad school type experience. But I never thought I'd, I'd get the chance to actually do it. And when I finally made that, that step onto set as a director, uh, a, lot of, a lot of my ego, I, I knew going into it because I'd seen so many other directors go through it as a producer for 10 years that like, 
I just try to check my ego at the door. But also at the same time, uh, I was like, don't fuck up. I was stressing out about every day's blocking. You know, you, you're you doing the work. Harder. You're not actually there having a vacation. You're there, like, you've had little sleep planning the day the day before, and you have to do this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, if, if you're like any, or if you're like us for not enough time. And it's, uh, it's, it's intimidating. But when, you know, when you finish and all those thoughts, you have time to think about it. I remember thinking, like, this could be the thing that gives me a career. And then also going, like, or it could not. For and, me, I just I feel like you have to throw those thoughts out the window. You do. Like, you do. It's you very just, dangerous. For, for me, like, like, I just I learned really early on, like, I would approach things and be like, oh, this is going to be a really good thing for my reel. And as soon as I thought about something that way, it would never turn out good. Yeah. But when I was just making something to make it because I wanted to. Yeah, that's the Then it was stuff. good. Yeah, and, like, and so with it's my, your voice. It's you. And so with my movie, I was like, I don't care what happens to this. I don't care where it goes. You know, it was amazing. We got into Sundance and got bought and blah, 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 blah. But, like, when I was making it, it was like, I'm just telling this story. That's all I'm doing. I'm telling the story the way I want to tell the story. And otherwise, like, you just, you get caught up in too much bullshit. Like, it's true. The best experiences I've had, and I've made a lot of stuff that have not, has not been fun to make and it hasn't been fun to watch. Uh, the, the ones I enjoy, the ones that, you know, I started out going, I want to tell the story. I want to work on this idea. And then getting to just try to push it forward and, and not worrying about the surrounding bullshit. I mean, you guys know, like, this is not an easy business by any stretch of the imagination. And my the main thing for me is just kind of – because I, I don't think set should be fun or needs to be fun at all times. I think that sometimes the best stuff comes from, like, a stressed-out set I agree. Uh, yeah, everyone's just, like, it, doing their job. Yeah, super es- especially with packed. comedy. Like, some, sometimes when it's a really laughy set, like, that doesn't mean it's funny. It's too much distraction. Right, it's too much distraction. And so for me, the real basis is, like – Every morning, amidst all the bullshit, do you wake up and you instantly know why you're doing this thing? Like, are you doing it for a reason? Like, do you have a reason behind it beyond a paycheck or because you think it's going to advance your career? Like, are you telling it for the, for a reason that matters? What was your reason with uh, Kings of Summer? Kings of Summer, I, you know, it, it's really interesting. Uh because my reason sort of changed in retrospect. In retrospect now, like, I see kids on Instagram and Twitter going in and getting tattoos from the movie or, like, going Whoa. and posting videos of them, like, finding the locations we shot at and, like, crying and, like, weird, weird shit. Because wow. I-, I was convinced for a while. I was like, oh, I'm making a movie for boys who grew up in the Midwest and really like Terrence Malick movies. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's a really small audience. Uh, I greatly underestimated like the teen girl contingency. Oh my god, that was that, gonna fall I had the for same it. thing on Would You Rather. I didn't realize so many teen girls were like gonna wig out. Yeah, and so that's crazy. But for me, with that movie, I think the the number one thing was I wanted people to walk out of the theater, and there was two things. One, I wanted people to walk out and be like, comedy can be beautiful, like it can be visually stunning. Mm-hmm. But but also, I wanted people to walk out of the theater and say, God damn, being fourteen was the best. And then immediately follow that up with, thank God I'm done with that because that was the most painful, awkward, horrible time in my life. But that's what makes you who you are. And I wanted to, like, capture that feeling. It is the worst time in a bottle. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the worst and the best. It's, like, incredible highs and the lowest lows. And the only way to move forward is to fall so hard on your face that you, like, realize you don't know anything about anything. Yeah, there's you know. a reason people treat you like a child. You are. Yeah, and I, I was yeah. also just really obsessed with uh, 
a quote from Bill Watterson, the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, uh, who, you know, he, his comic was a beautiful nostalgia piece. And he has this quote that's just saying, anyone who's nostalgic about their own childhood clearly doesn't remember it. And, <laughs> I've heard, yeah, I've heard that quote. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, I, I was like so confused trying to reconcile this man who created one of the like most pure, uh, like catalogs of youth and imagination and then such a jaded view of it. And like, I think for me, part of the movie was trying to reconcile that idea. Uh, <laughs> you can I'm go feeling the pain still. of my youth right now. <laughs> Coming out through this massage. Yes. Still bundled up you there. Brought, huh? You brought it back. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, so then, so then the meaning of the film changed for you and, after it's, well, it, I, I think it became its own life form. I think naturally it was just the process of realizing I wasn't making it for me. I was making it for other people. Yeah, it's not my movie anymore. It's not like yeah. you know there are things that I love about it, but my favorite things are the things like when I wake up on Halloween because uh, you know this is airing in October and uh, Halloween's right around the corner. Yeah, I guess. yeah, talking topically, <laughs> topically Halloween here. Uh, no, waking up and seeing, like, people dressed up as kids from the movie for Halloween. Like, that's the shit that you never imagine when you're making something. And that's the stuff that makes me happiest, at least. Just seeing it mean something to a whole bunch of other people. Like, you know, like, all of the weird things that I would stress out about, all of the reasons I was making it for myself, that's all there and I stand by all of it. But, like, for me, at least, I just realized I was making it for other people and not myself. And and where's this where where's this taking you now that it's out and and uh, and and you're you're off of it and you're moving forward creatively? I know you're working on an Amazon pilot. Uh, I want to talk about that. What else? What else you're sort of moving uh, closer to? Doing this Amazon show right now, which is about guns, which is really interesting. It's like Brian Dennehy and Jason Lee and this incredible cast. Uh, and it doesn't take a stance on guns, which is really interesting to talk to people about because people get pissed that it's not, like, inherently anti-gun. Uh-huh. It just, like, presents both sides and says, hey, here's why this is terrible and here's why this is awesome, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so I'm really curious what the reaction to that's going to be. Yeah. Um, I just got done, you know, I did this FX show that, you know, William is mixing called You're the Worst, uh, which I really like that people should watch. Uh, that's about two narcissists who fall in love. Um and then, I don't know, man. With each other or with themselves? Well, with themselves and each other. Oh. <laughs> uh, and you directed? or I did the pilot to that, and then the I did oh, okay. uh, three more episodes. So directing oh, a pilot cool. on television, uh, people always tell me uh, it's a lot like just – you're basically you're, – you're, you're showing people what to imitate for the rest of the series. Yeah, right? you're setting the yeah. tone. Yeah. With a pilot – a pilot is great because it is more akin to making a movie. It's yeah. still TV. Uh, in the sense that, like, you, you know, you still get to make choices that are big. Yeah, you're making you're making a lot of choices, and you are defining things stylistically. Uh, whereas when you show up to series, all of that groundwork has basically been laid. And honestly, a lot of TV directing, you know, I, and I have a lot of friends in TV that I love, but a lot of TV directing at its worst can just be being a traffic cop. You show yeah. up and you start waving people in the direction they should be. Going. Yeah. And, yeah. and the actors are in the routine and the DP knows what they're doing and there's nothing, you know, really creatively to do. Uh, and you're just making your days, uh, which is a bummer. Uh, but with a pilot, you get a lot of freedom and you get to do a lot of, uh, you get to set the tone, which is, uh, which is great. <laughs> you okay over there? Careful over there. 
Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you hang hang in there, guys. Come on, no one no one get hurt here. Uh but then now I, I'm just going off into like crazy movie land. It's uh I saw there's a big there's a big title on your upcoming projects. Metagear Solid. Uh yeah. Now um like I I really was like, oh, I'll make a movie and people will like it okay and that'll be fine and and now like things that were legitimately like childhood dreams are happening, which is really weird to talk about. Uh, how did how does that how does that come to you? That comes to me because uh after my movie, they were like, "Oh, we think this guy's a filmmaker and not just a comedy guy." And there's this wave happening right now where you know, the guy doing Jurassic Park 4 did a little indie. The dude who just did Godzilla did a little indie. Yeah. Uh, the dude who did Guardians of the Galaxy, James Gunn. Like, he comes from indies, you know? And studios now are more open to the idea of saying, fuck, we are making bad things <laughs> that audiences don't like, and why don't we trust someone who has a voice? Yeah. And so they're more open to taking these risks. Like, they don't want to hire that guy who they know the exact results and they know it's safe. You know, it's a fear-based industry, right? So, like, it's really easy for them to be like, oh, let's not take the cool, risky choice and let's hire so-and-so journeyman director where we know he'll at least come in on time and on budget and we'll get a mediocre product. Now they're more willing to, like, take that risk and be like, shit, let's, let's hire that guy. So... All these big projects came my way, and you know, I, here's the thing: I grew up on big movies. Like, I will, I'll talk foreign, crazy art house cinema until your your head spins. But the reason I got into movies is because I grew up on like giant tent poles that had themes and characters and heart and weight, and didn't didn't leave you feeling empty when you left the theater. Like Indiana Jones and Star Wars yes. and Die Hard and yes. you know movies that like had meaning yet were also giant spectacle driven movies you know what sorry to interject yeah, yeah. i really am waiting for the return of great adventure movies like indiana jones go watch guardians of the galaxy yeah i've been actually dying to it's um, really good uh yeah but no it's hard to it's just it's hard to make that stuff you know like everything has to go right and you need you need, like, a great writer, a great director, you need great chemistry, and then you need a studio that's willing to take those risks. Like, it's tough. But to me, they're just not mutually exclusive, you know? like you, And that's why, like, I look at what Chris Nolan is doing, and he's making these big studio movies that kind of have... Like, my grandma will go and see The Dark Knight, you yeah. know what I mean? Because she wants to talk about the themes within it. And if we can get away from the Transformers of it all and get away from just, like, this big, meaningless spectacle... Uh, like having made indies, I just don't think that that's the way we're going to re-engage audiences. I think that there's like a glass ceiling to that stuff. Yeah. Whereas if you can make great studio movies that have, you can open on three thousand screens and remind people, like you guys, for like, I mean, do you guys still go to the theater often? Do you know people that go to the theater often? I do. I do but only because not, I'm an addict. Like, yeah, sure. not David I'll, I'll and suck I the poison until it kills it. me. But what about your parents? Do they no. go to the theater? Oh, no. My dad can't even stand it. But, you know, thank God for iTunes, though, and their VOD right. services. But, like, that's crazy. Like, back in the day, my parents used to go to the theater all the time. Now yeah. they probably go twice a year, you know? And wow. we've just – we've broken our contract They actually with only go to, like, boutique cinemas that are playing stuff that the studios aren't delivering. Right. Exactly. But – 
I don't know. I just feel like there's like a weird glass ceiling to that stuff because yeah. TV is doing that shit so well now. True Detective. Yeah, True Detective. Like, the, like, yeah, just drama. You can just tell better dramas in TV now. So the, I got offered a bunch of big studio stuff, uh, like huge, huge tentpole movies, which was really cool and weird at the same time. But that comes back to like, I didn't take any of them because I was like, I don't like, I can't wake up every morning knowing why I'm doing this. If I'm going to fall on the sword and like go through the studio process, which is going to be a diff- different process, you know, it's going to be difficult times and weird at times. And, you know, I'm making, when you have $200 million on the line, you have so many more cooks in the kitchen. Uh, and I need to know why I'm doing this. Uh, I feel like it's really boring just talking about me. How are you guys doing? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, at the beginning of this, you were very self-deprecating, and now you're, you've, you've become very positive. So. <laughs> well, it's easy to become positive when someone's massaging you. So. <laughs> I have, like, four interesting conversations in me, and then I'm, like, tapped out. <laughs> so most of my, like, I've been friends at this point. Like, I have, like, friends for five times, and then, <laughs> then I move on. So. <laughs> can't really sustain anymore. <laughs> I used to be a really well-rounded person who had, like, exciting philosophical ideas to talk about, and now, <laughs> now it's all out the window. Yeah, I don't even believe what I used to believe 10 years ago. You I mean, what? when I think about if I met myself as an 18-year-old... Would you kick your own ass? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would definitely kick my ass at the 18-year-old version of myself. I would yeah. beat the shit out of that kid. I was the worst. But, yeah, I was the worst, too. But... I can't figure out if the 18-year-old version of me would think that I was doing cool things or would be like, oh, you fucking sell out. I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. How would you guys interact with the 18-year-old version of yourself? I'd give myself a blowjob. <laughs> You'd blow yourself? Dude. You would you swallow? Oh, no. No? Oh, so you're a tease. <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be Gross. too selfish. I'd be like, he's 18 year old, David. It's not me, David. Gross. Probably he doesn't like... really deserve it. Wait, you would give 18 year old version of you a blowjob? No, I don't know if that's true. I'd make him blow me, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would open up some sort of time space continuum rift that would be worse. Where I have to get a blowjob, or the universe would destroy get destroyed. That's after how while, I feel about dating. After life, a while, so. I'd get really like I start to wise up. Like this is probably not right. But now that I've done it and I've interacted with younger Dave, I have to do this for the sake of humanity. <laughs> it's now that's how I'll pitch it. I'm like, dude, if you don't do this, the world will end. And eighteen-year-old uh, David is not bright enough. He'd be like, oh, if I have to do it for the, for the for world. Mankind. All right. Well, that's uh, we've got a plot of a new movie here. And I don't have to remove any ribs. I just get another David. Yeah. Every man's dream. <laughs> How about you? Would you blow yourself, uh, Sasha, if you were? <laughs> uh, nope. I'd feel too guilty about it afterwards, that Catholic guilt. That you molested yourself? <laughs> Catholic guilt for touching yourself. Duh. 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 It's ingrained in me. Where, uh, how did we get on this? I don't even know. Because <laughs> you're a sicko. Yeah. I think we, we at one point we were talking about normal things and then we were talking about blowing ourselves. Sorry, we recently had Eddie Dick and on the David got, got way too excited with this massage. We we, <laughs> we had Andy Dick on the program recently. Now all my judgments out the window. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Your life's about to take a sharp drop. Yeah. So good oh. luck. Who were you guys as eighteen year olds? 
I loved Dave Matthews too much. Really? You were that guy? I loved him way too much. And uh, I was making... People... How many times did you see him play? Oh, many, many, many oh, times. Gross. And I think... That's like marginally... I would say that's worse than being a fish head. The, did you the wear person I'm with, puka shells? The person I'm dating now almost wants to dummy because that was part of my life once. Did you wear puka shells? No. Yeah, right. What about a hemp necklace? Yes, I, I had a hemp necklace. See? Did you frost your tips? No. no <laughs> I did not frost my tips. Thank God. I drove an Explorer. <laughs> and, uh, you camped out the back. Yeah. And I had a, a Fender guitar, and I played I played on grassy knolls. Oh, oh God. Man. And girls be like, what are you playing? I'm like, just something I wrote. I would have hated you. <laughs> Uh, Sasha, I hated who me. Were you? Uh, who was I? 18. I was, I think I was, um, I was much more cynical and hard at that More age. cynical? Oh, yeah. Jesus. But see, look, I've, well, I've always been somewhat of a cynic, um, but I always try and find the positive through that. Um, but I think I've learned how to do that. Uh, at that point, I don't. I don't think I knew how to do that. I trusted. It's odd to say a cynic would trust people, but I did. I was 18. Um, you trusted people, but you were cynical. Yeah. And I know that's a it's a contradiction, but... No. Uh, you're 18. You know, the world is new. And uh, I... Let's see. Wait, where, where are you guys from? I'm from New York. New York proper? Or? Uh, New York proper, sort uh, not really. Teen, as a teenager, we moved to the city, but we lived right outside it. Okay. I'm from Sacramento, but I moved here when I was 18. Okay. So, I, uh, I think, you know, I was, I worked my ass off, literally, and, uh, <laughs> as much as I could, and I really, I didn't give myself a lot of time, and that's something I've learned to do just recently in the past couple of years, is to really... Treat still myself, yeah, like yeah. treat myself the right way, and um, yeah, I'm figuring that out still. And like, take to learn to take time off and appreciate life because it is short. I'm finally, I'm finally traveling for the first time in ten years. Like, I haven't traveled in so long because I was like, work, 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 ambition, and now I'm like, wait a minute, there's a world I'm not looking at right now because I'm looking at myself. Hmm. Yeah, I only travel for work. And I used to. And uh, now I'm finally getting that moment of like, holy crap, I have a life and I'm not living it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, life's overrated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to have a personal life anymore. I don't, I, I watch movies, I work, I, and then I come home and like, whatever your day job is, like, I then have a billion different worlds I have to sort out in my head in development yeah. land and like I just don't know how to I don't know I don't know how to decompress from that anymore well I think that's why you have to have friends that share your passions in movies you know like that's I think I'm serious I think that's one of the reasons David and I became such good friends because we both love movies and it's hard you know it's hard to find that it sounds odd but it's hard to find somebody that's just as passionate yeah, but there's a really tricky, slippery slope, right? Where there's a difference between, like, being a fan of cinema. Because you, I mean, you guys probably have experienced this, how shocking it is, how few people in the industry, like, actually care about film yep. history or, like, any obscure cinema or I don't think I've met like anybody. 
And I then mean, one guy who's on, like, you're the only good executive I've ever come across. Yeah, like, it's, it's uh, luck, luckily, like, I've found a lot of people like that that I love, but but still, like, then that's still work, you know? Like, mm-hmm. then you're still just talking about business and just, I don't know. It's just, I'm just learning more and more that, like, the hardest skill is just learning to disconnect and decompress. It is. That's why we started this podcast. Mm-hmm. But we're still talking about movies. Yeah, but <laughs> you get a mess, you get two massages out of it. You guys are killing it. Mm-hmm. Straight killing it. Oh. So when did you move to LA? I moved here like um, eight years ago. I was in Chicago before that. Oh okay. Um, and I just kind of came out here. I was in Chicago, and I just sort of felt like I. If I was going to try this, because, like I said, filmmaking seemed impossible, and the idea of going to L.A., even when I was in film school, seemed... I thought I was going to make documentaries. I was doing hmm. really serious documentaries. Uh, I was doing... I got commissioned by the University of Arizona to make one about uh, women in prison and the re-entry process back into society, because hmm. men and women are told different things when they re-enter society. Yeah. Uh, women are told, like, reconnect with their family. Men are told, go get a job. Yeah. And for women, that generally leads them right back into trouble. Mm. And then I was doing a documentary about, like, gender and video games, just because I've always been really obsessed with gender and uh, sexuality and shit like that. Um, so I was making these really weird, serious documentaries because I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then it wasn't until much later that the idea of, like, entertainment dawned on me. And then I kind of said, like, well, if I'm going to try this. i got to actually try this. Came out to L.A., very quickly realized that this is an insane place. Yeah. Um, I'm someone who prides myself on figuring shit out, and I don't feel like I started to enjoy myself in L.A. until I gave up on the idea of figuring it out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then, you know, L.A. is just about your support group, though. Like, it's just what we were talking about, like... This can be one of the worst, most horrific places on the planet. Yeah, it can be really lonely if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, but then if you find the right people, you can find some of the greatest, just like most emotionally interesting, sensitive people, creative people out there, I think. Hmm. But We actually had um, a friend come back to town. He was uh, he left L.A. for a while, and he just moved back in. And it was like the first two hours were... <laughs> The most emotional conversations ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it was great. It was like, oh, friend. It's nice. You know, it's really nice when you get that time with your friends. And I just find that people, like, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm so work-oriented now. But, like, I forget when I go back home to the Midwest, like, what just kind of, like, chilling without a purpose is. Mm. You know? Just, like, hanging out on a couch and then realizing that you're having a great time without having a purpose or a plan or anything, you know, like, that's just a rare thing. Uh, and when you find those people, I think you just have to keep them around you. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, now I'm on the east side. Like, when I first moved here, I moved to West Hollywood, which was not oh. my speed. Oh, that's the worst place to throw yourself if it's not for you. Well, it's great if it's for you. Venice but like, would have been worse. Where do you guys come from every day, uh, Ariana, Sandra, Messia? Highland Park. I don't know. Neighbors. Venice. Where? Venice. Uh-oh. Oh, that's a, 
<laughs> now you can be extra firm on my shoulders. <laughs> been so where, where are you sitting, Serena? Oh. El Sereno. It's like right next I'm like to Serena. El Serena, yeah. Not a beach right person. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. the beach gives me no joy. The beach stresses me out. Oh, no. I know. Well, it's off a... I mean, the stresses you out? Right around here. Yeah. Did you say the beach stresses you out? The beach stresses me out. This beach does stress me out. But not beaches in general. After Beaches in general stress me out. Really? Like, yeah, because I... Like, as, like, a weird neurotic Jew, if I'm in a situation where someone says, oh, you should be relaxed... Then I start thinking about how I'm not relaxed. Yeah. And then I get angry. Like, uh. getting caught, literally, hell on earth for me would be the idea of being caught on the PCH coming back from Malibu. Because you have yeah. the beautiful ocean next to you, and then you're stuck in traffic, and I get furious. Yeah. Like, for me, the, w- the only way I can relax on vacation is when I go to, like, Japan or Korea or a place where I don't understand anything about what's going on. <laughs> and so it takes 100% of my energy just to, like, figure out what's going mm. on. And then it forces me to forget about everything. Yeah. Mm. Which I guess is kind of, like, what I look for in, like, a woman, too, which is, like, can you make the world melt away? Mm. But mm. that's... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that is rare. I started dating someone recently, and every time I hang out with her, I, I forget what I have to do in my life. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I had to like yeah, that's read the three shit. scripts this week, but I just yeah. went to lunch for like four hours a day. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm incapable of being in a normal relationship. So, yeah. uh, but why? Why? Yeah, because nobody can understand or appreciate your work ethic. Uh, partially, that's a big part of it. Like yeah. when I work, I work and. Uh, and there are just times when I can't afford it, but also, like, it's just, it's like a toxic thing where, like, uh, when I then find a girl that um, allows the world to melt away, then that becomes dangerous the other way, where, like, then that takes away from my work. Yeah. So, finding that but balance But it lets you live tough. your life. Also, I'm only attracted to girls who are mean to me. <laughs> so, oh, God. <laughs> uh, not, like, mean to me, but, like, girls who won't give me the time of day. Oh, uh, yourself. I'm very mean to myself. Uh, um, also, ironically, um, I guess I'm okay saying this, uh, my last girlfriend was a porn star, and, uh, that is not a normal thing. I am just appalled. Thing. No, uh, that's just not a, uh, normal relationship to be in. Yeah. So... I well, yeah. I can attest to that. <laughs> so, uh, but you're you're like long out of the biz. Yeah. And uh, she was not, so that uh, presents its own mm-hmm. fucking. Yep. <laughs> well, I was in a relationship during while I was performing, so yes, it is. Uh, yeah. Comes with a host of issues. What were the issues that you were finding? Uh, Jordan, in that you were coming up against. In that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to get real about it, like, Let's get real. the thing that I really liked, the, the reason that I really liked the relationship at the time was I, I guess I was in this phase where I thought that a relationship was ultimately about two things fundamentally, which is like, do you, can I emotionally trust that you're with me and can I physically trust that you're with me? And at the time, I was actually kind of like, intrigued by the idea of saying, I know that we're removing one of these elements. I know that you are physically not just with me. So 
can I believe, can I look into your eyes that emotionally, like, our bond is strong enough. Yeah. And I actually thought that was hot. I thought that was interesting. Like, I thought there was something sexy about that. Uh, and for a while, it was. Um, and then it just... I don't know. The issues were just... Uh, I think we just made each other's lives very difficult. Or I'm, I'm, I definitely made her life difficult. I think it got to a point where for her performing became more difficult because previously she didn't have anything that she was, like, kind of emotionally connected to. And mm -hmm. so she could just go and perform and disconnect. And then uh, I think I complicated that. Um, but, you know, it's just... It was a weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, Sasha. What were what issues did you have when you were in that situation? I think it always, well, for two people who are on the same page, it always starts that way, where it's it, it it's exactly that. Well, we might, you know, I might be sharing myself with other people, but we know at the end of the day we're we're emotionally there for each other. Um, but that's never how it is. And at the end of the day, human nature takes over, no matter how hard you try. Human nature being what, jealousy? Yes, or I think okay. so. Um, where you, you think you might enjoy that, it becomes the exact opposite. Uh, and so that caused a lot of issues for me. It's always nice to think that you can do something that's alternative, and, and you know, this is normal, but we're going to make it work. And then you realize, you know, things are pretty programmed, and... People do have needs and, and jealousies. But did, like, so in that relationship for you, like, do you think that was, like, a, a an end that was mutual, or did those issues come more from one person? Uh, no, I think it was a mutual, I think it, I mean, that wasn't the only problem, obviously, or we would still be together, but, um... But I do think it came from both sides of, you know, communication is so underrated. And I, I think we both said things that we thought we were being truthful about. Like what? But just in terms of our relationship. But at the end of the day, we both felt differently. You know, we tried and strived for certain things, but didn't actuate them. Um or hit our true feelings. In any relationship, too, like I think at the beginning, uh, when you're getting to know someone and you're trying to get to trust them and have them trust you, there's a lot of times when you might not say the truth, you might say what is needed to be heard. Mm. You know, letting someone be like, oh, I'm cool with that. I, I don't mind asparagus. And you really hate asparagus, but you don't <laughs> want to be difficult. <laughs> but then later, like after time and, and you've, you've gotten closer to someone, you can start to be a little more reactionary and honest. The amount of relationships I've had that asparagus is broken up is <laughs> astronomical. But like, you know, uh, no, I, don't, I, I don't mind I that we're out that. to 3 a.m. every morning. It's something I'm um, good for. And then you're out to 3 a.m. for three months and we're like, you know what? I actually do mind. Fuck this. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, I think, that, I think that's different. That's yeah. like wanting to let things slide. I think what yeah. you said earlier is actually more on point maybe about, like, wanting to believe uh, that you can whether it is, like, rebellious or just, like, you know, against the grain, just this idea of, like, oh, no, we can we can make this work, you know? Yeah. Right? Like, like when teenagers are, are, are in love, like, oh, no, 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 we'll be together forever. Right. And yeah. then time sets in. Yeah. In reality, well, I was a teenager. Like, oh. 
you know? That's true. Yeah, in your case, you were. Well, yeah, and I think, I don't know. For me, it was just also something about, like, human nature. Like, I wanted, I think I just wanted to believe that that was, like, on a human level possible. Yeah. Uh, just because I thought that there was something, like, beautiful about that, that, like, it just didn't matter. Um, but. I agree. For whatever reason, it, it did. Yep. So, um. <laughs> well, we've been conditioned. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's conditioning, though. Like, I think it is. You think it's all just conditioning? Yeah. But I don't think we'll ever... You know, I, I think this is it. But it, I don't know. I've, it's so strange because, especially in this town, you know, there's so many people that have affairs or they have a side piece and, like, that's great. Uh, sorry, this feels really good. But <laughs> people refuse to be honest about it. And a lot of people like the mystery or the secrecy of it, and that's the fetish, that's what gets them excited. Um, Just so that it's rush, all, yeah. Huh? Just like that thrill and that rush. And, yeah. Yeah. So Jordan, how can we uh, keep up with you uh, after this podcast? Are you, are you on social media? I am poorly on social media, uh, at Vote Roberts, V-O-G-T Roberts. Uh, I have an Instagram as well. <laughs> it's just uh, bad pictures throughout my life that make my life seem much more interesting than it actually is. Uh, but yeah, we can all be internet friends. Please tell tell us more about your projects as they unfold. We're at Deep Tissues, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Sasha, you're at Sasha Gray. Yes, I am. At all those things, and I'm at David Guy Levy. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for making time and coming in with yeah, us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. This was a weird one. <laughs> Don't forget to hydrate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. podcast like where I take someone and then they just tell me where to drive my car and then do it like either while we're driving or while we're parked just because I like I feel like in high school I had so many specific memories of like you know like we couldn't go out and drink so we would just me and my friends would like hang out in the car and talk for like hours mm-hmm. and I'd be curious if I was I feel like but as adults people would get weird about that <laughs> maybe not